It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Dom Nichols, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the battlefront, analyse events this week in New York at the UN, and discuss quite why Ukraine has asked Germany not to send any more tanks. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 21st of September, one year and 209 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by former tank regiment commander and chemical, biological and nuclear weapons expert, Hamish de Breton-Gordon. I started by giving the latest updates from the front lines. Firstly, the Security Service of Ukraine, the Internal Domestic Intelligence Agency, and Ukrainian naval forces uh, are said to have launched a large-scale strike on the Saki military airfield in occupied Crimea last night. This is from sources inside the security service. At least 12 Russian combat aircraft, we think Su-24 and Su-30, were at the airfield, as well as a Pantsir missile system, Pantsir, known as SA-22 Greyhound by NATO. It's a, a family of self-propelled medium-range surface-to-air missile systems, each one made up of a, of a launcher, a radar station, and a command post. Now, also at Saki, it's thought to be a training base for Russian drone operators. That came from Ukrainian media, media which was citing the uh, SSU, Security Service of Ukraine. And reportedly, drones and Neptune missiles were used for the strike. No reports yet of what damage uh, or casualties and or casualties were inflicted. But it's quite a big, uh, quite a big strike there. It comes a day after the the strike on the the building belonging to Russia's naval or the Black Sea Fleet headquarters. Images today on social media shows that, that the building that was targeted half completely demolished. As we've said in recent uh, in recent weeks, as they're getting closer and closer to to Crimea, in range of more weapon systems than the Crimea itself, and also the the ground lines and the sea lines of communication to and from Crimea in, under increasing pressure from Ukraine. Now, separately, onto the actual land campaign, Ukraine's armoured vehicles, pretty conclusive evidence that they have punched through Russia's first line of uh, mines, barriers and trenches in the southern front. 
There's geo-confirmed footage which shows Marder, German Marder, US striker vehicles, these are infantry fighting vehicles, both of which used by Ukraine's 82nd Air Assault Brigade, operating behind the so-called Sorovkin line after General Sorovkin, the guy who organized the, the withdrawal from Hezon, organized the, 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 the emplacement of these defensive lines and then seemingly put his uh, through his lot in with Prigozhin and is and is out of favor and maybe even out of a window we don't know I haven't seen him for for ages but they seem to be Ukraine's forces seem to be behind that first line just west of Above in the Zaporizhia Oblast now infantry have been dismounted from those vehicles and been seen to clear trenches in the region but we should just have a think about what's happening here we'll ask Hamish a little bit later for his view but firstly if the vehicles have got past the anti-tank ditches exploiting gaps in the Russian line, then that's one thing. They're over the minefields and over the anti-tank ditches and obstacles and what have you. As we've said before, it's entirely, it's an engineering task to get over these things. The problem is it takes quite a while. And if some bugger's shooting at you, it's bloody difficult. So the obstacles in and of themselves are not the the be all and end all. You, You can clear them. The problem has been that there's been such a weight of defenses and Russian troops in the area that they've not been able to get Close and some weeks ago, we know Ukraine seemingly shifted tactics to to hold back those those very those prized uh, armored possessions in in favor of a kind of artillery and infantry led assault. So the fact that those vehicles are now forward would suggest that Ukraine is confident that they have that they've not only got over the the ditches and stuff by the vehicles, but they've pushed back the artillery threat and the anti tank missile threat and the infantry threat from Russia such that they can expose those vehicles to to greater danger. Whether that will herald some kind of armoured breakout is far, far too soon to say, but it is notable that those vehicles are so close and, and beyond that line. Okay, next, where are we going? So last night, Russia carried out its first attack on critical infrastructure in Ukraine for uh, six months. This is according to Ukraine's energy, main energy provider. As a result, there were partial outages in five regions. Energy facilities in central and western Ukraine were damaged. Ukraine's air defences say they shot down 36 of 43 cruise missiles. I'll be asking Hamish shortly about how he thinks Ukraine is prepared energy-wise for the coming winter. Now, it's worth noting, next next thing, worth mentioning today's UK Defence Intelligence tweet. It says that today is the anniversary of Putin's announcement last year of the quote-unquote partial mobilisation that saw up to, we think, close to 300,000 new reservists called up. On September the 15th this year, the Russian State Duma Defence Committee chair and former General Andrei Kartopolov reiterated that mobile uh, sorry that mobilized personnel were obl- obliged to serve th- for the duration of what they continue to call the special military operations so not the normal year long um, term of service they've got to stay for as long as it as long as it takes however in a new admission it's just said it's not possible for these personnel to be rotated out of the operational zone during their service now uk defense intelligence their analysis is that their this assessment is that this absence of rotation out of combat duty is highly likely one of the most important factors in the low morale that's thought to be rife in Russian lines and the failure of Russia to conduct higher level training. And in turn, they're suggesting that lack of training is likely continuing to or likely contributing sorry, to Russian difficulties in conducting successful complex offensive operations. So, you know, one thing leads to another, and it comes from that the the mobilisation and how these mobilised personnel are treated. Again, interested in Hamish's comments shortly. 
just finally, before I, before I hand over, let's have a look at the, the UN. So the UN General Assembly has been on this week. President Zelensky spoke yesterday at the UN Security Council. He used his address to call for Germany to be given a permanent seat on the Security Council. He criticised the organisation's inaction on the war. Our colleague Susie Cohen, our Telegraph's New York correspondent, she's there, she was there, and she's written about it extensively. You'll find all that online. Now, claiming that the council should represent what he called current realities, Mr. Zelensky also suggested African unity. Now, that might have been a a slight, you might have just got the words wrong. Maybe he means African Union, or maybe he means the the continent of those countries in Africa. But suggesting African unity should be given a place at the council, as well as broader representation for Asia. This was his first in-person appearance at the council. He's done five other, or at least four other, video appearances. He also called for the for the assembly to be given power to overcome the veto power held by Russia, the, the veto of the permanent five members, UK, US, France. <clears throat> UK, US, France, Britain, Russia. There we go. Didn't have to take my shoes off. The veto can stop anything, and that's the biggest problem at the moment. But he said, President Zelensky said, it is impossible to stop the war because all efforts are vetoed by the aggressor. And he added the Security Council is ineffective. He said, the year, years-long discussions on UN reform must be translated into a viable process of UN reform, and it should not only be about representation here in the Security Council, the use of veto power, power that is what requires the reform. Now, he was sat, he was sitting directly opposite Vasily Nebenzia, who's Russia's ambassador to the UN, and he said, we should recognise that the UN finds itself in a deadlock in the matters of aggression. Humankind no longer pins its hopes on the UN when it comes to the defence of a sovereign border of nations. Mr Zelensky finished by saying, world leaders are seeking new platforms and alliances that could reduce the disastrous scope of problems Problems that are met here within these walls with rhetoric rather than real solutions, with aspirations to compromise with killers rather than to protect lives. Lives should be protected uncompromisingly. Now, throughout all that, and you'll find the the footage of social media and elsewhere, our, our website. Sorry, I should say that first, shouldn't I? Anyway, you'll find the you'll find the footage. Throughout the session, Vasily Nebenzio, who, as I said, Russia's ambassador to the UN, he was fiddling with his phone, fiddling with the pencils on his desk, or just staring blankly ahead. But before Mr. Zelensky spoke, there was a really interesting, really terse exchange where Mr. Nebenzia had objected to the speaking order that allowed President Zelensky to go first ahead of council members. He said the Albanian president, Eddie Rama, who's this month's council president, was trying to turn the meeting into what he called a one-man stand-up show, which is probably a joke aimed at Mr. Zelensky's past as a comedian, but it's difficult to know as jokes are supposed to be funny. But anyway, Mr. Nebenzia added that having President Zelensky address the council would be nothing more than a spectacle. Then, in a rather brilliant reply, I think, Mr. Rama reminded the Russian delegate that on the five previous occasions President Zelensky had addressed the Security Council, which I say were all by video link, he had, as others have done from other countries, spoken before the council members. There's a precedent there. So Mr. Rama then said, I want to assure our Russian colleagues and everyone here that this is not a special operation by the Albanian presidency, nice touch, but the continuation of a long and well-established practice of this council. You've repeated many times that the violation here is about President Zelensky speaking before the council members. There is a solution for this if you agree. You stop the war and President Zelensky will not take the floor, which I thought was quite a good put down. 
Hamish, uh, welcome back to the pod. What caught your eye from the proceedings in New York this week? Yeah, hi. Good, good afternoon, Dom. Welcome, welcome back this side of the pond. Good afternoon, everybody. Yeah, I thought I think uh, it had been a really interesting week at the UN. I hope, and it looked as though the Russians felt very, very isolated. Unsurprisingly, I, I must say I do agree with a lot of what President Zelensky was saying yesterday, uh, and certainly my piece in the Telegraph yesterday reflected that. I, I was. One of the things he was saying is, let's stop all these shady peace deals that perhaps some of the members of the Security Council uh, and the UN were trying to broker on the UN's behalf. And Zelensky was very much saying, it it seems that Russia is the one who's at the centre of this sort of peace, rather than the one who's actually been hurt most by by the Russian aggression. Uh, And the peace deal should focus on Ukraine rather than Russia. Uh, and uh, I think he's absolutely right. And I quite agree. The, the Albanian president's comments were absolutely uh, to the point uh, and, and very on message. I, I agree with Zelensky as well. And I think I agree with a lot of people that the UN has, it's all about jaw jaw these days and is completely stymied, as you say, by this flipping veto, the, the fifth member being China. Uh, and one never quite knows where China is going to go. So with the veto and the permanent five, really nothing that affects either one of those members adversely is ever going to get through and has never got through. So certainly Zelensky's view, my view, is we get rid of the veto and extend the UN Security Council and perhaps put uh, motions through on a majority basis. Now, if Russia wants to abstain, abstain and ignore it, then so be it. But having all these thousands of diplomats living in New York at great cost to us all, let's make it something that's 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 worthwhile. And, and certainly when it was set up at the end of the Second World War to replace the League of Nations, the view was, or, or its motion was, to maintain peace and harmony between nations. Well, it very much hasn't done that. So, yeah. I will anything come of it. I I think Russia has been seen to be very isolated on the world stage. And this sort of tongue-in-cheek humour that Ukraine has attacked this war with was very evident in New York. So let's hope something comes of it. But those of us who have been watching these things for many years are a little bit cynical. But I think the bow wave is very much with the Ukrainians uh, rather than the Russians. And Zelensky is putting a peace deal on the table. And ultimately, that peace deal is about getting the Russians out. And I think as we talk about some of the other issues you've highlighted there, Dom, you know, we are getting to a really interesting area of this conflict. Yeah, well, just on that, I see there's been some chatter over the last couple of days about Ukraine asking Germany not to send them any more tanks, which does buck the trend of the last few months. Hamish, what is going on there? This is a really interesting piece, quite bizarre. So Leopard 1, quite an old tank, designed, delivered in the mid-60s. Bizarrely, it has a British gun, has a 105mm rifled Royal Ordnance gun to it. And it sort of highlights one of the issues. So the Ukrainians really wanted Western armour. But now they've got four types of it. They've got the Leopard 1 and Leopard 2. They've got Challenger 2 and Abrahams, Abrams rather, Abrams just crossing the border now, all very different tanks, 
all need to maintain and as well as I do, Don. These things are not like like your Aston Martin, Don, that you can just put your key in and start up and drive off. They actually need a lot of careful looking after and maintenance. And when they're all different, they've got different engines, different ammunition, different tracks, et cetera, et cetera. It takes a while. So I think for the Germans to hand over, I think it was the, it was over 100 Leopard 1s that were destined to Ukraine. For them not to work. Now, they have been in storage for 10 years. And I can think, and I think Leopard 1 equates to Chieftain, which I think we both served on. And crikey, imagine if you locked your Chieftain up for 10 years and then took it out of the garage. Virtually every seal would have blown and it would take weeks, if not months, to get it up and running again. So, so the fact that the Germans have handed these over and they haven't been in good order is really, yeah, not good. I, yeah, I say unfair. That sounds a bit pathetic. So, yeah, I, I hope a big slap on the rest of the Germans. And, you know, we know they've got loads of Leopard 2s. If they really want to make a difference, give the Leopard 2 much more reliable tank, much more easy to maintain, and much easier to trade on. You'll remember from Chieftain days, it took us officers weeks, if not months, to learn how to fire the beasts. Whereas the Challenger 2, when I converted to Challenger 2, it was two hours it took me to learn how to do it. So... Sort of thing the same with the Leopard. Leopard 2, that is the modern tank. So, yeah, a little bit. I think the Germans need a wrap on the knuckles for this. But let's keep those modern Western tanks flowing in. Yeah, certainly it took me weeks just to be able to say Rat Cat Plunger and Release Catch Cam. And I still don't know what the hell it, t- it was. It was some bit of the gun. I think you'd know better than me. I also think this highlights, once again, tepid oil. We've spoken about tepid oil before, the components of capability. So you've either got kit, you can go and buy kit, go and buy a tank, go and buy a gun, go and buy some body armor. But unless you have tepid oil, which is training, equipment, personnel, information, how you're going to use it, doctrine, sorry, infrastructure, doctrine, organization, information and logistics. And as you've got to tick in all those boxes, some more than other, you need infrastructure, you need logistics and what have you. You might not need too much doctrine right now. Ukraine's just up and at them, lads, a bit more than that, of course. But you need to t- have a small tick in each of those boxes. Uh, otherwise, you've just got something sitting on the sitting on the tank park. So I think what's also happening here with these old Leopard 1s is that the logistic tail was such that they just didn't have the people who knew how to fix them anymore. So whilst a lot of the tank might have worked, small parts of it might not. And if you know, you need the whole thing to work. So I think it's partly that, that logistic tail and therefore points again that just countries just sending stuff. And this is a frustration with the Ramstein process. People think, just send them loads of stuff. If you only have the big heavy thing sat in the shed and you don't have people who know how to fix it and people who know how to look after it properly, and that could include with some of this stuff, up to and including properly air-conditioned hangers to keep them at the right temperature and humidity and all that kind of stuff. It's quite sophisticated stuff. Then you're not going to have a capability. You'll be able to roll it out once and then it'll, then it'll stop, I imagine. Don, if I can just come in there before we move on, absolutely. But also looking at the Russians, they're taking a lot of their old stuff out. And I can't imagine that the T-55s, which although they might know how to maintain them, what one of the key bits, and we'll talk about the MOD conscript tweet this morning, the Russians getting people trained onto these tanks, the tanks they're getting out of storage, they must be having the same problems, which is why we know that they're fighting such a static operation. I just... I, I, a little bit of nervousness. I see the piece on the Telegraph today about Poland uh, and the grain deal get, getting a bit uppity with the Ukrainians. Of course, a lot of the infrastructure, logistic infrastructure is based there. So I hope that 
that there, there is no indication that there's going to be any angst on the sort of provision of logistic support from Poland. The last thing we want is close neighbours like that arguing over over grain and other bits and pieces. But you, on the tepid oil side, you're absolutely right. When time is so important uh, and Ukraine is fighting for its survival, as you say, the Ramstein process needs to be really thoughtful, Don't, not just empty our cupboards of stuff we might have there, but make sure that it's usable when it gets to the, fr- the front line, the front end. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned there, um, thanks for, for nudging me on the old Poland stuff. It, it is worth mentioning so there's this current spat, which has been going on for a little while. The genesis of it, let's not forget, Poland has been one of the biggest stalwart supporters and defenders and donators to Ukraine. So you know, I don't think there's any doubt that, that Poland want Ukraine to win this war. There is separately the politics going on of grain because of the, the difficulty in getting grain out of the Black Sea. A lot of it is going by road and a lot of that is then going into Poland which because it's not being it's costly to push it further and would be good if the EU or someone else, but probably the EU could pay to get that grain further afield. But if it can't and it just floods the markets in Eastern Europe, then of course that's damaging for Poland and some of the other allies there. So that's the genesis of it. The Poland's getting no no difficulty, no nothing wrong with them having this opinion that their industry is in impacted there. I think there is a role for the, for the EU. The idea that, that they're going to withhold weapon systems, I think that is mischaracterizing what, what is happening. I think what they've done is they're up to date with what they've promised and pledged. And the, as we said, there's no point just sending any old toot. They've, they've sent and promised what they can. And I think they've come to a kind of natural pause point for the thing. What else can they, what else can they send? That's being characterized as, oh, they're not going to give anything else. I mean, you could say the same of any country who's who up to date with what they've pledged. Britain sent a load of storm shadows. We haven't sent any since the, those batches a few months ago. That's not being characterized as Britain is withholding storm shadow. from. It's just a little bit daft there, I think. We need to be a bit careful about how to interpret the headlines. Let's not forget also that there are elections, I think October the 15th, elections in Poland. So there's probably a little bit about a little bit of grandstanding and people got to be seen to be tough and have an opinion on this subject. So let's just take everything with a grain of wheat on this on this subject. But I don't think there's any doubt at all that Poland is one of the most stalwart allies to Ukraine right now. But just generally, Hamish, how do you see the war going at the moment? Is there time for anything significant before the wet season arrives and then winter races in after that? How do you, how do you see it's going? Yeah, Tom, uh, and I think it's really timely to discuss it with, with those sort of things in mind. It's been interesting that the Ukrainians have been pretty quiet for the last few weeks about the offensive. So I agree with your analysis at the beginning of the pod that actually the breakthrough that they're announcing today, the fact we're seeing Marder and striker vehicles through the breach, as it were, is hugely significant because, as you said, what Ukraine wants to avoid is these mark these key vehicles being in direct line of fire from from Russian artillery and tanks that were. So it would suggest that that they have now secured a, a, a significant breachhead and through the major obstacle belt. There's a piece today on on the the Telegraph Twitter feed about thirty you percent know, of Ukraine is mined. So to get through. This massive minefield, the, the Sorovkin line, with these key marked vehicles is significant. And I think then when you tie it into the MODs and Intel post today about conscripts not being able to be rotated out of the line, 
we know that these conscripts are barely trained and the morale must be absolutely shocking. But I think most importantly is in order to have a viable force, you, you have to cover all the tepid oil, as we've said, and training is absolutely key to it. So for Russia, we know Russia has been struggling with what we call a strategic reserve. This is a reserve, if you like, held at the back that is full of armor and helicopters and all the rest of it, who can move rapidly around the Sorovkin line to, if there is a breakthrough to shore it up. Now, it seems that the Russians don't have that. And the fact that the Russian army is now full of conscripts who have no training and can't even come out of the front line for a bit of an R&R in training backs that up. So I think that what we're seeing is potentially very significant, but you absolutely nail it. I think that there was an American general last week saying there was 30 days left of, of sort of what we would call armoured manoeuvre fighting for the weather plans in. So there, there is a bit of an expedient there to rapidly move forward. But it's the fact that we're this the Zaporizhia area it's broken through potentially. I mean, what the there were talk, there was talk yesterday. I meant to mention earlier in the UN that that Biden is potentially going to lock at unlock attackums. This is long range precision artillery, basically, which is key. I mean, the, at the moment, stand fast, storm shadow. But at the moment, the the key bits of artillery that Ukraine has is the Hyams which is long-range precision, but only gives you sort of coverage to 30 or 40 kilometers out, So, which means that if the Ukrainians can keep the key Russian artillery 30 or 40 kilometers away from its breakthrough, then it can protect these marked vehicles. If you throw in attackums, then you extend that range even further. And let's hope that Biden will relent on that. We, I think we're expecting to hear something today or tomorrow on it. So as with 30 days or so left to go, maybe it'll be extended a bit longer. Who knows? That will be key. Although having said that, I think once if they do manage to break through and make major inroads into Crimea, the going in Crimea, uh, and what I mean by going is the ability for tanks and other armored vehicles to move, is slightly better than it is because it, it's flatter and, and I understand the train is slightly easier. But having said that, come sort of November time, when it anticipates manoeuvre because of the ground is going to become more difficult. But yeah, the fact it's been, been quiet and now I'm talking about it, yeah, let's hope that this might be the key breakthrough that everybody's been hoping for for a while. Yeah, just to finish that point, so this breakthrough to the... In the Zaporizhia region, it's not hugely deep at the moment, but then that's because it's been fighting against the the first line of Russian defences. And you mentioned a strategic reserve there, and we don't think Russia has a strategic reserve because if it had, there's a good chance we would have already seen it to try and plug this gap. So firstly, what's the reserve for? It's absolutely that. It's to plug gaps where the enemy are breaking through or to exploit successes. Now, Russia's not been on the offensive, really, 20 great degree for months now. So there's no no successes to exploit. So any big reserve would be there to stop a, a, a breakthrough um, by the enemy, i.e. Ukraine. So for this salience to be slowly and steadily increased as it is, it's either because Russia is 
happy to allow that to happen. And, and by happy, maybe there's a mother of all ambushes going to come. I doubt it, but possibly. Or maybe they're happy that winter's about to set in. So that will do for the uh, do for the advance. And they can try and shore it up in the meantime. Or they are not happy for it to happen, but they can't do anything about it. And the means at your disposal to do something about it would be a strategic reserve. Now, I happen to believe that, that Russia is not content to allow this salient to build and for, to, to, to for allow them to get through the, the defensive lines and start using their armoured vehicles and what have you. So I think it is the latter. I think what we're seeing here is the evidence that there is no real strategic reserve because they could they should have shoved it in there to try and push the Ukrainians back and then hang on for winter. So I think what you said is absolutely right, Hamish. I don't think there is a strategic reserve. But whilst we're talking about winter, just recently, the authorities in Kiev have been saying that they are, if they've not used the word confident, that's the mood music they've been they've been allowing to get out there, the narrative, confident about the energy levels that they have got in reserve to hold to see them through the winter, if that's if the scale of Russian attacks on on the civilian power network is anticipated to be similar to the to last time they committed that particular war crime. Power, you've been looking at the Zaporizhian nu- nuclear power plants and others to a great degree. What's your assessment of Ukrainian energy reserves going into winter? I think very interesting, Dom. Overnight last night, for the first time in six months, the Russians targeted the the power output, the power network in Ukraine, and we understand there are five districts currently without power at the moment. Yeah, is this part of their campaign? There was a lot of talk about them saving long-range missiles, cruise missiles, etc. For this, what is slightly concerning is we discussed last week, or there's certainly a piece in the paper last week that UK had uh, provided highly enriched uranium, or not highly enriched, but enriched uranium. The uranium you need for a nuclear power station is about 20% enriched. The uranium you need for a nuclear weapon is about 90, so there's a big difference. But you still need enriched uranium. Hitherto, the Ukrainians used to get their uranium from Russia. So that, that obviously stops on the 24th of February. But we understand that Britain enabled or helped or gave or whatever it was, enriched uranium to 20% to Ukrainians. They have that. There are five nuclear power stations in Ukraine. Everybody knows about Chernobyl. Chernobyl is shut down and it's, it's not producing any power. There is then Zaporizhia, that which we've discussed many times, and Zaporizhia is becoming more and more important because the fighting is getting closer and closer to it. Uh, the safety staff are being removed. Although Zaporizhia is not producing power at the moment, it, it has five reactors that are shut down or on sort of sleep mode, if you like, but there's still a heck of a lot of nuclear fuel there and all, lots of rumours and We've discussed many times on on the Russian nuclear threats, really, from the get-go. But let's park those. There are three other nuclear power stations in Ukraine. Before the war, 65% of power for Ukraine came from nuclear. The intention is, is to get those three others, which are in, in, in Ukraine proper, not bits at the moment, that have been occupied illegally by Russia. So these other three power stations are expected over the winter to produce 51% of the power. Now, one anticipates that they're very well protected. They're designed, they're relatively modern, and they are very resilient to... They're actually designed, if an airline or a plane crashes into them accidentally, they're not designed 
to be attacked. They're not a, an, an immediate concern. And they're probably more resilient than conventional sort of power stations. But we know that Ukraine's lost an awful lot when the Kukov Dam was blown up. And I saw a ridiculous post from the Russian embassy in the UK yesterday reiterating that Ukraine had done that. But anyway, that, that's a different issue. So the concern would be is if, with all that power coming out of the nuclear power stations, the Russians then again start to attack that. Uh, and I would hope that the UN and the US and the UK and the other, and France, et cetera, et cetera, just reiterates after that attack last night, again on the power network, after a six-month gap, that, that NATO should be saying, just remember, we still, an attack on a nuclear power station is in effect you, Russia, trying to create an improvised nuclear device, and we will react accordingly. So it's something we need to watch very closely, not only the fighting around Zaporizhia. And it, it, it's in public knowledge that, that I have an app that's been used in Ukraine for people so that they know what to do in the case of a nuclear accident or attack, and people are concerned at, at the moment. So the more that we the more that I and others are doing to help them to make sure that if an accident or attack happens, that they can be protected is, I think, a good thing. So, yeah, unfortunately, as the winter comes on and Ukraine becomes more reliant on the power, that no doubt the Russians will try and interdict it. But uh, slightly going back to our previous conversation about the offensive, and we are seeing more and more what I call special operations, SOE, as I called it, and various things I've written about. This is Ukrainians, Ukrainian allies working behind the Russian lines, having a real impact. I think only today or last night, another attack on a Russian airfield in Crimea with four or five major significant Russian jets on it. We don't know what's happened to them yet. The ability of the Ukrainians to interdict the Black Sea fleet, ammunition dumps and fuel storage facilities in Russian going bang. It's very clear that the overall operation Ukraine is conducting it is not just on the Sorovkin line and no doubt is having an impact. And crikey, if you cannot train your conscripts, but you're happy to put them in the front line because that's all you've got, with the amount of degradation that, that the Russian military is suffering, things again get more and more difficult. And let's hope the Russian people start realising what is happening so that the peace plan that, that Zelensky's talking about in New York at the moment people will start realising that actually that is the way ahead, best for Ukraine and ultimately best for the Russian people. Sadly, of course, Putin and the other gangsters who support him in, Kremlin, in the Kremlin seem to have very little regard for their people, but I'm sure they'll get their comeuppance at some stage. So on the fuel, on the power supply, something we need to look at closely over the next few weeks. Hey, Michelle, let's just come to you for your, for your final thoughts today. Yeah, thanks, Dom. I, I, a very good friend of mine is... What the previous DSACA commander of NATO in Europe, General Richard Sharif, he happened to be my squadron leader in the first Gulf War. And we speak regularly. He did tell me that he hadn't had me on the pod recently. And I said, didn't get the Guernsey to go to the States, but that's, you know, but he did say he, he relies on his, his information about Ukraine almost solely from the pod. So, yeah, Dom and the team, you have a very significant, uh, who is always keen, and I'm sure he'd be keen to give his views as well. But I suppose my final thought is, is you know, to seeing everything that's happened in the UN over the last week and seeing what's happening in Ukraine at the moment, 
and, and also all the other stuff that's going around the world, just in this country, but the, the whole world. It's Yeah, I, I just hope that people are not tiring and not losing their nerve and not losing their focus. And we must support Ukraine to the end. And, th- and that is what Biden said in the States this week. And it's what King Charles and President Macron have said today in Paris. We must see it through. Sometimes these words necessarily don't resonate right throughout the strata, as it were. So, yeah, my my abiding thought and plea to everybody is to keep the faith, keep supporting Ukraine to the hilt. And the sooner we get this over, the better, and the sooner that we can all start concentrating on other things that are vexing us at the moment. Last week, during our tour of the United States, I visited Picatinny Arsenal in New Jersey. This is the location that builds and produces current weapon stocks and also develops munitions for the future. It's also the part of the US Army that organises the delivery of military aid out to Ukraine. I had a sit-down interview with Brigadier General John Rhyme, who's the commanding general of the armaments and ammunition bit that develop today's weapons, and also Chris Grosano, who's in charge of the development command that's tomorrow's weapons. Here's our conversation. So we're here at Picatinny Arsenal in New Jersey. I'm very honoured to be able to talk to Brigadier General John Rhyme and uh, Mr. Grosano from the Joint Programme Executive Office Armaments and Ammunition and the uh, Development Command Armament Centre. General Mr. Grosano, thanks so much for taking some time to speak to The Telegraph. I'm really interested to dig into the the industrial and logistic and support side of the war in Ukraine specifically, but just generally how we think about sustainability and the industrial requirements of modern warfare. So if I may, General, if you could just describe for me your, your command here, the spread the roles and responsibilities and what a typical day looked like before February the 24th last year. Sure. Brigadier General John Rhyme, I've been in the chair since June of last year as the JPO. I'm also dual-hatted as the commanding general of Picatinny Arsenal. Our principal focus prior to the start of Ukraine was supporting Army modernization priorities, you know, as well as Army readiness requirements, both armaments and ammunition. I think that Ukraine really highlighted some challenges for us, both in the industrial base and my sense is that 20 years of counterinsurgency and counterterrorism didn't really stress the system like we're seeing today. I think the workforce sees this is a, a great opportunity, clearly all in on the mission, and they realize, hey, this is historic time. This is a once-in-a-generation opportunity, not only in terms of supporting Ukraine, but to provide that deterrent capability to be able to produce munitions at scale, and should the need arise, be able to deliver quality, reliable, lethal munitions to the joint force as well as our international partners. A lot of the estate was built for the the Second World War primarily, a little bit for Korean War, but a lot of it is 60, 70, 80 years, years old. So you had your upgrading program as it was, and then you had the additional requirements to support Ukraine. So how much stress is your organization under at the moment? So our challenge is we're trying to maximize production at the same time, modernizing, adding new lines, 
as well as expanding capacity. That, that's a lot of risk to juggle. I think the good news, though, is we've got bipartisan support. We're getting sufficient resources. We had done a lot of the hard analytical work on what it would take to modernize our facilities, you know, given some of the aging infrastructure, and based on our modest funding prior to the war, and now we see that uptick. You know, we were able to leverage all that analytical work to then quickly accelerate the other key piece of this has been the support from Congress with some unique authorities, cost and pricing relief and competition relief that have really enabled us to put money in motion to get after some of these tough challenges. And Mr. Crisano, so DevCom's looking to the future, but you're also so you're taking lessons straight out of Ukraine and trying to embed those and turn them into rapid capability decisions? Is that, is that fair? Yeah, so we're supporting on multiple fronts. One is supporting with our engineers and scientists on the production line, modernization, and expansion. So it takes a lot of uh, engineering talent to design these new production facilities, right? And our engineers are there to help support installing them, getting them eventually spun up to speed and qualifying the, the rounds that are going to be coming off of those lines. In addition to that, we also are providing uh, other scientists and engineers to support the development of alternate sources of materials, verifying the quality and uh, inspect requirements for all the materials that are coming in, both raw materials and end item products. So we're verifying the safety aspects of things that uh, that are being brought in as well. Uh, in addition to looking forward in the future, so we're getting lessons learned out of the Ukraine, right? And that's helping inform us on what that future operating environment is going to look like and what are the systems and capabilities that we're going to need going forward into the future. So we're starting to lay the groundwork for the science and foundation for that now to look for exploring the vulnerabilities that are out there and available and that future transparent battlefield and then looking back and saying, what capabilities can we bring to bear against that? And when do we need to start making those investments now? As General Ryan mentioned, as they're going out looking for more sources, our engineers and scientists are traveling with the teams as they're doing surveying in different countries around the world to look at the facilities to make sure that we think they're going to be able to produce the things that we need. And how do you ensure, you talk about liaising and working with facilities overseas, how do you ensure the safety standards and just the, the just the industrial standards are met because you're now talking about a a process much of which is outside your control is it not yeah, so we can't control the environmental aspects of the other facilities in other countries, right? But we're there to make sure that the ammunition, that the equipment that's coming off of those lines are going to satisfy the quality requirements and the reliability requirements that we're going to need to satisfy, you know, our needs or the needs of any user that's going to use that equipment. So, and General, are we able to put some numbers on this? So in terms of, say, 155 mil ammunition, artillery ammunition, could you give me a flavor for what was business as usual before, what you're at now, and what your aspirations are for the future, and what the cost is, financial and elsewhere, of getting up to that level. Sure. So when the conflict first started, we were roughly at 14,000 a month was our capacity. Today, we're at 24,000 rounds per month. Next month, we'll be at 28,000 a month. By the same time next year, we'll double that again as we realize some of these key investments that we're making and expand capacity with a new uh, facility for metal parts that'll be an additional 30,000 metal parts per month. We're expanding capacity up in Canada. That'll be an additional 15,000 rounds per month coming out of there just in terms of metal parts. Here in short order, we're going to be at 85,000 a month. And so that increase, you're you're talking about a six-fold increase up to circa 85,000. 
back through the supply chain when you're talking about all the energetics, the metal for the rounds, for the driving bands, everything, personnel. Where's where are the pinch points? Where are you looking at and aiming off for in, in the future? Yeah, so when we first started, metal parts was the rate limiting factor. And so we were all in on, hey, that's what we got to address. That's the kind of critical link. If we want to go fast and deliver capability, we got to address the metal parts aspect. And so we had that concerted effort. We made some facilitization at Scranton and our existing facilities. We added shifts. And so that was really what has enabled us to go from 14 to 28,000 a month. I mentioned partnering with other industry to facilitize and expand capacity there. We'll realize some of that. We got the brand new facility going into Mesquite, Texas, another 30,000. We're excited about that. It's a fully modernized line. A lot of the lines we have were purpose-built, single you know, product, be able to produce at industrial scale. We'll have fully modular lines that, for example, Mesquite, I'll be able to produce the, you know, the current M795. I can pivot to the new round, the 1128 base bleed round, which is the new U.S. round going forward. So that really offers a lot of unique opportunities for us to have a modular capability that can produce multiple things for us. And what impact has AI, 3D printing had on your, your system as a whole, but specifically for this current surge? So it's enabling us to put forward manufacturing equipment out, right, to help produce some spare parts and some capabilities along those lines. We're also looking much longer into the future about the ability to produce, again, attributable systems that we can produce in quantity forward in the battlefield and uh, expand those and be able to adapt and change those over time. So AI and all the advanced manufacturing capabilities are going to enable us to do that into the future. Yeah, from a production perspective, we've got a really neat pilot effort that we're working jointly together on where we're leveraging AI, ML technology, really from the medical industry. But right now we're stressing our radiographers. And so at at the tail end of production of load assemble pack, we do a final x-ray inspection on the quality of the metal parts, make sure there's no cracks and you're looking for, you know, voids and piping and other critical defects with the explosive fill. And we've got really good data sets of what right looks like and what what critical defects look like. And so now you can really reduce that burden on our radiographers who are looking at right now we're 24,000 a month. And what does that look like at 85,000 a month? And so I think this will really take a lot of the burden off. And if we're successful with this on the production front, we want to scale this across the munition enterprise. So we're excited about this effort. And that's come from the medical sector on the radiography. Sure. Yeah. Wow. And this is all or primarily aided by that big spike in funding that we saw earlier sure. on. That, and that's that over how many financial years is that stable? And where has it not yet been voted in? I'm not sure how far ahead your budgeting cycle works. So most of the funding we're getting now, whether it's tranche replenishment funding or supplemental, we're getting two-year funding. And so a lot of the key investments that we're making now is for production capacity and production modernization. I think the conversation we'll have to have at some point, Ukraine will end. And what is right in terms of minimum sustaining rates for this newfound capacity and how much production are we putting through? There'll be a conversation, hey, what do we mothball? What do we keep active? I think we're on a path now with a lot of nations looking to uh, reconstitute or expand their own organic capacity. Is there opportunities to leverage you know, what we are, I think, leading the way right now in terms of where we're at with rapidly expanding and modernizing so there'll be capacity available for a lot of our international partners. I was 
somewhat struck by how this war is impacting physically those supporting nations outside of, of Ukraine very little. We haven't got men and women in harm's way. But you have now. You are, you've got civilians taking greater risk, physical greater risk for Ukraine here in the US. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? We haven't really heard about that. I think that's... Yeah, it's Incredible. it's amazing. I mentioned I, I actually visited Scranton Army Ammunition Plant yesterday and just looking at the kind of forging operations, the heat, the environment. There's true patriots there. During our lunch break, I had the opportunity to talk with them. And they're so proud of what they're doing and what they're doing in support of Ukraine. They're just remarkable individuals. But I'd also tell you that we're, we're trying to get after more modern, right? A lot of our you know current infrastructure dates back to World War II. A lot of brute force, a lot of hands-on, and so you know we go to fully automated, and so be a different workforce. Some of the concepts we talked about earlier about kind of safe separation, and graceful degradation, and removing you know people from energetics—they're all concepts that we're applying as we design and build these new facilities going forward. We're certainly appreciative of the work that they're going to be doing, and for the foreseeable future, until we kind of realize some of these newer production lines, modernize robotics. So we're excited about that. And in terms of physically sending the stuff out to Ukraine, once it's been voted or has been a presidential drawdown, how do the mechanics work? Do you have to inspect things here before it goes out? Or how does the, the physical side of supply work? So the physical side, it, we're really partnered with our Joint Munitions Command. They're a, an element underneath the Army Materiel Command in terms of receive, store, issue. They handle the transportation piece. We talked a little bit about stockpile reliability, and uh, they have real-time information on kind of quality status condition code of the munitions. And so when those presidential drawdown decisions are given, they'll move the stock, ensure it gets to the right places and then the right quality going forward. And then it's on us, then on the backfill piece and how we approach that. And whether it's the kind of new we were talking is particularly if we uh, give up you know, some of our older inventory. And you know, we talked a little bit about the 795 and, and, and we're laser focused on producing them at scale. But for buyback, we want to buy back our new round, this 1128, kind of our next generation, high explosive 155 artillery round. And Mr. Crisano, we were talking earlier on about how just the scale of, as we're seeing again, industrial warfare, you've got so many different natures of ammunition in close proximity. What lessons are you taking forward to ensure that there's there's as much safety as possible. So if a facility is hit, then it's not all going to go up and you know, we call it great destruction and, and loss of personnel. What lessons are you taking from the war on that front? So we have a lot of uh, safety protocols that are put in place with explosive safety arcs, right, to making sure that as we're designing and building these new facilities, that if there is a mishap for some reason, that there's not going to be what we call like sympathetic detonation, right, or, or things aren't going to propagate beyond the contained area, whether it's physical structures that we put in place to contain some of the explosives in the production environment, in addition to the safe separation distances. So there's a huge amount of intellectual capital and intelligent folks we have that have been doing this for decades who really understand all those nitty gritties. And there's uh, protocols that we follow for each of those design facilities. So that's going to help ensure that going forward in the future, that if there is a mishap, that it's contained. And uh, as General Rhyme had mentioned there, looking at graceful degradation, right? So we have separate lines so that if we do have a line that goes down for some reason or another, we have alternate lines that can continue on with production. And I understand that 
Picatinny Arsenal was the place that, that learned all the lessons about safe handling because in 1902 you, you were hit by lightning and the whole place went up. And it, from that, that many of the processes and systems and regulations are in, in place today. Yeah, I mean, Picatinny's been involved in yeah, There's a picture of it up there. Picture, the I keep there. it there for a reason. I look at it every day. And so actually, you know, Picatinny's got a rich and storied history going back two and a half centuries. So back in 1880s, when it was originally established as the Dover Powder Depot, right? And, and soon after, it turned into Picatinny. And uh, ever since then, we've been supporting basically every major war since World War One in one way or another, whether it's directly with production or research, development, and engineering. So we've had a presence here in northern New Jersey for, for quite a long time. And uh, that's where all this uh, intellectual capital is, is based at. Taking that safety model further and extending it overseas as you're working with allies and partners overseas, how far are you able to to ensure security and safety, physical safety of the equipment you're supplying? Bear in mind, it may have been produced with TNT or more a more energetic compound. And how far are you able to influence allies to put in place some of the procedures and regulations that you would have here? So we can only take it to, to the point of delivery. Right after that, it's, uh, it's beyond our control anymore. But we have a, a number of systems and software calculations that are in place that help ensure that if here's a bulk amount of explosives that you're going to be storing, and it'll tell them how and when they should be storing it, the separation distances, how much net explosive weight they can put in certain areas. So we provide all the guidance and assistance with that. But at the end of the day, the, the users uh, have to decide what, what meets their needs. And just to finish off with, I'm interested in your your view of the future. So it sounds as if this establishment, your two organisations, is the embodiment of the amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics, if I may. Mm -hmm. So what's this place going to look like in in a year's time and five years' time? How much of the lessons that you're identifying now are you going to be able to take into business as usual? How much will this change in the next five years? King of Battle's back, right? And so I think Ukraine has really shed the light on the importance of a lot of things we do here. A lot of times we tend to focus on capability, right? The big shiny platform, the end item, you know, it's sexy, it briefs well, it sells well. You look at the glossy brochures, but I don't have the things that go bang or boom. It's a big paperweight, you know, at the end of the day. And so I think um, we... We're back to a more balanced, I think, conversation of capability versus capacity, you know, in the right amount and the right right spot, you know, going forward. And I think what we provide, you know, in terms of that capacity to bring reliable and safe munitions for our platforms, for individual weapon systems is important going forward. And the recognition that, hey, we're designing the Army of 2040, yeah, our industrial base in a lot of aspects is from 1940. And so I think uh, folks have recognized that challenge and, uh, you know, are kind of leveraging the opportunity that our support to Ukraine has given us to exploit that opportunity, not only to you know, rapidly support the Ukraine, but also for us, you know, both from a deterrence perspective, but then also to be able to produce that scale when required. Mr. Cassano, General Ryan, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for talking to The Telegraph. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks for coming out and spending time with us. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, 
where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it's released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Giles Gear and Elliot Lampitt. Executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.